0: New York this is democracy now
1: Here's what I would say to Mr. Trump Instead of playing politics with this issue instead of telling members of Congress to block this legislation join me or I'll join you in telling the Congress to pass this bipartisan border security bill We can do it together
0: President Biden calls on Donald Trump to join him in a bipartisan bill to further militarize the U.S.-Mexico border and crack down on migrants and asylum seekers. We'll go to El Paso to speak with a leading immigrant rights advocate. Then we look at an intercept expose of a controversial New York Times article alleging Hamas weaponized sexual violence on October 7th.
2: There is no news organization in the world with greater influence, particularly over the U.S. government and American public opinion, than The New York Times. And to uh, publish a story in the middle of a war that makes incendiary allegations, You have to have that nailed down tight because if you get something wrong, it can take lives. And in this case, we see a deeply flawed piece making extremely incendiary allegations.
0: We'll speak with Intercept reporters Jeremy Scahill and Ryan Grimm. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In Gaza, the official death toll has topped 30,200 as Israeli forces continue their deadly attacks. One day after Israeli soldiers fired on people waiting for aid in northern Gaza, killing at least 104 people, harrowing survivor accounts have emerged in the wake of the massacre.
3: We went to get
4: food and flour, and they started shooting at us. Then we threw ourselves into the streets, and no one looked for us. Eventually, people brought us here. There are martyrs lying around, and no one is looking for them.
1: If aid is to come to us in this way, we
2: do not want it. We do not want to live on the blood of our children. If our children will die and be
0: harmed in exchange
4: for aid, we do not want aid.
0: Gaza's health ministry announced today at least another four children have died of starvation and dehydration in northern Gaza. On Capitol Hill, California Congressmember Rohana grilled Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin over ongoing U.S. support for Israel in light of Thursday's massacre of Gazans waiting for food aid.
4: If Israel again ever stops American-paid aid from getting into Gaza, will you commit to not sending future arms sales?
1: Again, that's, uh,
4: uh, that's not my decision. We need some consequences when another country is defying you, defying the National Security Advisor, defying the President, uh, defying National Security Memorandum 20. Uh, there has to be some consequences.
0: Secretary Austin refused to say the U.S. would ever hold Israel accountable for killing Palestinians and violating international law. During questioning, Austin also said over 25,000 Palestinian women and children have been killed by Israel since October 7th, though that figure is likely close to the true death toll. The Pentagon was later forced to walk back Austin's statement, claiming he was referring to the total death toll, not just women and children. In labor news, Washington state's largest union, United Food and Commercial Workers, endorsed a primary vote for uncommitted rather than President Biden in the March 12th primary, citing a need to, quote, end U.S. funding toward this reckless war, unquote. Yemen's Houthi movement warned it's planning surprise military operations in the Red Sea against Israeli U.S. and other targets over the assault on Gaza. Meanwhile, Lebanon's caretaker prime minister, Najib Makati, said a ceasefire in Gaza would trigger negotiations to halt fighting between Hezbollah and Israeli forces.
1: We are saying, God willing, if we
4: are able to reach a cessation of military activities in Gaza, then I believe that we will
2: have ahead of us weeks packed with
5: negotiations so that we can reach what I have always called
4: long-term stability in the south of Lebanon.
0: In New Jersey, residents of Teaneck say they'll organize public protests if the Torah Synagogue goes ahead with a plan to host a March 10th real estate event selling housing units in illegal West Bank settlements. This is local activist Rich Siegel.
2: If we allow this sale to go through, we are enabling a local synagogue to violate both domestic anti-discrimination laws— and international law. Now there's other reasons we shouldn't allow it, okay? There's a genocide going on right now.
0: In Texas, President Biden and former President Trump traveled to the U.S.-Mexico border Thursday in competing trips to tout ever harsher immigration policies. Trump visited Eagle Pass with Republican Texas Governor Greg Abbott, while Biden spoke from Brownsville, where he appealed to Trump to work together to lobby Congress on a border deal.
1: Here's what I would say to Mr. Trump. Instead of playing politics issue— Instead of telling members of Congress to block this legislation, join me or I'll join you in telling the Congress to pass this bipartisan border security bill. We can do it together. You know and I know it's the toughest, most efficient, most effective border security bill this country has ever seen. Their
0: visit came on the same day a federal judge temporarily blocked a sweeping New Texas law that would have allowed police to arrest anyone suspected of entering the United States without authorization. SB 4 had been set to go into effect next week. The Inter-American Commission on Human Rights held a special hearing Thursday on climate change fuel displacement. It's part of an effort to have the organization formally recognize forced migration due to the climate crisis and establish legal protections for climate refugees and internally displaced people. Eugenio Alberto Ramirez from Honduras is a survivor of last year's deadly fire at a migrant jail in Ciudad Juarez, Mexico, which killed 43 people. He was trying to make his way to the U.S. after he lost his livelihood when the shrimp farm where he worked was destroyed due to rising sea levels. This is part of his testimony voiced over by an interpreter. And let us not be looked at askance, saying, oh, God, here come some more immigrants. Block the border. We have human rights. We simply are hoping for the chance of a better life. That's all we want. And uh, I I can only hope, pray God, that the governments would get together and understand the situation and somehow find uh, some decent, some humane way to address the problem. In the Texas panhandle, at least two people have been killed as the Smokehouse Creek fire continues to rage. On Thursday, it merged with another wildfire, becoming the largest ever fire in Texas history and the second largest in U.S. history as it spreads into Oklahoma. The flames have engulfed over a million acres, raising entire neighborhoods to the ground. It's just 5 percent contained. The climate crisis is making wildfires more frequent and more devastating. Greenpeace said, quote, As the largest oil driller and producer in the United States, oil companies in Texas are literally fueling the flames on their doorstep. In Pakistan, the National Assembly swore in newly elected members of Parliament Thursday amidst protests by lawmakers from the party of ousted and jailed former Prime Minister Imran Khan. Khan's supporters got up and shouted, vote thief, as Shabaz Sharif entered the chamber with his brother Nawaz Sharif. Both men are also former prime ministers. Shabaz Sharif is expected to form a new government after none of the major parties won a majority of parliamentary seats in February's election. Supporters of Imran Khan have accused the military of election tampering. Here in the United States, over 30 Congress members sent an open letter to President Biden asking him to withhold U.S. recognition of the new Pakistani government until a, quote, thorough, transparent and credible investigation of election interference has been conducted. In Iran, polls have opened in the first election since an anti-government uprising rocked the country in 2022 following the death of Masa Amini while in police custody. Voters are casting ballots for 290 parliamentary seats and 88 seats on the Assembly of Experts, which appoints the supreme leader of Iran. But turnout is expected to be low amidst calls for a boycott and voter disenfranchisement. Jack Teixeira, a member of the Massachusetts Air National Guard, is expected to change his plea to guilty to charges of leaking a series of highly classified Pentagon intelligence documents to a group of gamers on the messaging app Discord. He was indicted last year under the Espionage Act and has been jailed since April 2023. The 22 year old is scheduled for a Monday hearing in Boston to change his plea. In media news, The Intercept, Raw Story and Alternet have sued OpenAI and Microsoft, accusing their generative artificial intelligence products of copyright violations. The outlets say their copyrighted content was plagiarized and used to develop and operate the popular AI tool, ChatGPT. Raw Story and alternate CEO John Byrne said in a statement, quote, It's important to democracy that a diverse array of news sites continue to thrive. Open AI's violations, if not checked, will further decimate the news industry and with it the critical news reporters who affect positive change, unquote. In Ghana, rights groups are sounding the alarm as lawmakers passed a new bill targeting LGBTQ communities. It includes prison sentences of up to three years for anyone convicted of identifying as LGBTQ, up to 10 years for advocacy campaigns aimed at children, and a maximum five year sentence for establishing or funding an LGBTQ group. Same-sex intercourse is already banned in Ghana. President Nana Akufo-Addo has said he would sign the measure into law if the majority of the population supports it. And in Moscow, thousands of mourners have gathered outside a church for Alexei Navalny's funeral amidst heavy police presence. A number of attendees were arrested hours before the funeral started, but mourners say it was important for them to be there.
3: I could not not come, because I think that I have to give my last respect to this man. Were you afraid? We were very afraid. We arrived early and were standing here for a long time, hiding our flowers and cameras. But now I realize that we need to do this and speak up.
0: Hundreds of people have been arrested for publicly mourning Navalny in the two weeks since his death in an Arctic prison. The U.S., rights groups and others have blamed President Putin directly for Navalny's death. Among those spotted at the funeral were recently Kremlin-disqualified anti-war Russian presidential candidate Boris Nadezhdin and prominent Putin critic, former mayor of Yekaterinburg, Yevgeny Roizman, as well as U.S. French and German diplomats. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I am Amy Goodman. We begin today's show in Texas, where the two leading presidential candidates visited the U.S.-Mexico border Thursday. As many voters say, immigration continues to be a key issue. President Biden was joined on his trip to Brownsville by Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, who was recently impeached by House Republicans over his handling of the border and immigration. Biden's reportedly considering a sweeping executive order to deny migrants the right to request asylum if they enter through unofficial ports of entry. The same authority was invoked by the Trump administration. Meanwhile, Biden called on Donald Trump to back a bipartisan bill before Congress to further militarize the U.S.-Mexico border and crack down on asylum seekers and migrants.
1: Here's what I would say to Mr. Trump. Instead of playing politics this issue, instead of telling members of Congress to block this legislation, join me or I'll join you in telling the Congress to pass this bipartisan border security bill. We can do it together.
0: Biden's trip came the same day former President Donald Trump visited the Texas border town of Eagle Pass. Trump claimed the border was safer when he was in office and used the term invasion to refer to asylum seekers forced to flee their home countries and arriving in the southern border. He also touted fake news about crime rates by undocumented immigrants and asylum seekers that are not backed by any evidence or data.
1: Now the United States is being overrun by the Biden migrant crime. It's a new form of uh, vicious violation to our country. It's migrant crime. We call it Biden migrant crime, but that's a little bit long. So we'll just leave it. But every time you hear hear the term migrant crime, you know where that comes from. Crooked Joe is the blood of countless innocent victims. It's so many stories to tell. This comes
0: as a federal judge on Thursday temporarily blocked a new Texas law set to go into effect soon that would give police the power to arrest migrants they suspect of entering the U.S. without authorization. For more, we're joined in El Paso, Texas, by Marissa Limon Garza. She's executive director of Las Americas Immigrant Advocacy Center, one of the groups challenging the Texas law as before. She wrote an open letter to Eagle Pass and Brownsville ahead of Trump's and Biden's visits that said in part, quote, the circus is coming to town. Like you, we've become the proscenium, or stage, for all host of political theater focused on spectacles, soundbites, and media clickbait. Marissa Limongarzo, welcome back to Democracy Now! Can you talk about the significance of these dueling trips and President Biden asking Trump to join him, or he said he would join Trump in supporting increasingly harsh um, legislation around the border?
6: Greetings. Thank you for having me. It is not lost on Las Americas that this is a moment where clearly Texas has become a battleground for the soul of this nation. And Texas holds the largest land border with Mexico. And so it's clear that both presidents, past president, present and governors and the like are very interested in what happens at the southern border. And so it's pathetic frankly, to think that the far right has a satiable thirst. They are insatiable, and no amount of red meat in the form of borderland communities, people on the move, newcomers, neighbors alike who've been here for decades and that are in mixed status households will ever be enough tribute to this this particular um, political reality. And so knowing that, it's incredibly painful that both of these uh, leaders used our communities, our borderland homes as backdrops for their incredibly dangerous rhetoric. Texas has very lax gun laws. We already know what happens when you mix this kind of rhetoric with xenophobia, access to semi-automatic rifles. We know that here in El Paso, they know that in Uvalde, they know that in Allen, We know this reality, and that's why it's incredibly painful, albeit not surprising.
0: Can you talk about what you understand President Biden's plans are? Immigration is emerging as one of the top issues, if not the top issue, in a number of states' primaries around the country. Um, Now there's word that President Biden, if he cannot get the legislation passed in Congress, will issue executive orders much closer, more in line with what Trump did. Can you talk about what these might be and your concern? And if you feel that the Democratic administration of Joe Biden is hearing what immigrant rights activists on the ground
6: are saying. Immigration has been a political football and a little bit of kryptonite for quite some time, going back basically until until nine eleven. And and that's when we saw a real shift in how we respond to this idea of this nation state that is the United States and how people on the move can or cannot access territory and protection on US soil. So we know. That uh, asylum is a completely legal, internationally recognized right. It is something that we, our Congress, has committed to, and yet this administration, administrations past, have chipped away, chipped away, chipped away through policy, through practice, through law, the ways that we actually uh, live up to those values. And so, it's disappointing. You know, we were part of conversations with the Biden administration when they were transitioning into office, and frankly surviving the horrors of the Trump administration, knowing that our community was the laboratory for so much injustice, of zero tolerance, of family separation, of remain in Mexico, of Title 42, of all of these laws and practices designed to keep people out, to say, through policy, do not come, and to know that we now have a unified force. It doesn't matter which party um, is taking on this issue, Ultimately, they are against people on the move. They are against Black, Indigenous, people of color, people of the Global South, people that are part of the LGBTQ plus community, mothers with children, unaccompanied children, like people who are living the reality of United States intervention in foreign policy, the result of the climate crisis, which is very much real and is causing people to flee. And then the most ironic is the fact that We see people from around the globe. It's not just uh, brown folks from Central America and South America here at the southern border. We see people from Africa. We see people from Europe. And so the fact that we're willing to invest so heavily in foreign wars, proxy wars, and think that it won't cause more global migration is laughable. And so it makes me question, what is the benefit? And to me, it's clear money and power always goes back to those things. And so it's amazing to think how much money is made on the back of someone on the move. And how much power can be wielded and upheld. It's incredibly disappointing and sobering to know that it doesn't matter which party. Uh, We're never we may be even at the table, but we're still on the menu.
0: I want to go to Homeland Security (laughs) Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, who was with President Biden in Brownsville. This is what he said.
5: You heard from DHS leadership about how resource starved we continue to be. Only Congress can address our desperate need for more border patrol agents, field operations officers, immigration enforcement agents and officers, asylum officers, immigration judges, support personnel, facilities, and technology. We are removing and returning historic numbers of migrants who entered illegally and failed to qualify for relief. Just since mid-May, we have removed or returned more such migrants than in any full fiscal year since 2015.
0: Last month, the House Republicans voted to impeach Mayorkas, making him the first sitting cabinet member ever to be impeached. Republicans um, uh, accusing him of failing to uphold immigration laws at the U.S.-Mexico border. If you can respond to what he said, and also Trump, uh, repeating uh, factually inaccurate um, lies, uh, just to clarify what factually inaccurate means, when he talked about— the country being overrun by Biden migrant crime, new form of vicious violation of this country. Um, the fact that migrant crime, crime statistics are so much lower than crime statistics in the United States of everyday American
6: citizens. I would share, you know, simply put, the American public, they're just being racist, There's no other way to describe it than the language coming out of the secretary's mouth is one that still upholds policies of deterrence and cruelty. And the data shows, the record shows that more drones, more concertina wire, more buoys, more technology is only causing more harm and more death. This has been, last year, 2023, was the most deadly on record for migrants in our area. And that's because we're so rigid in the way that we're responsive to the needs of human beings and a very real humanitarian reality at the southern border. And so, no, it's racist and it's against human rights and the well-being of all people. And Las Americas, we believe that people have a right to migrate just as much as they have a right to thrive in place. And we also believe that people have a right to information that affects them. And the way that people are talking about these fellow humans is horrific.
0: Let me ask you about the significance of the um court Texas court just um blocking SB4. And for people who don't know what SB4 is outside of Texas, explain.
6: Sure. So in the state of Texas, every two years our legislature meets to pass laws and, and to govern. And usually we have a regular session. And this past year, twenty twenty-three, we had four special session so that Governor Abbott and his cronies could push along legislation that they deemed appropriate for their Texas. So Senate Bill 4, that we are actually in active litigation against the state, along with the El Paso County, American Gateways, and the ACLU, is the result of this effort to control the border, again, through violence and through harm. This uh, racial profiling law again, racist and actually goes against um, many other real Texas values. Is designed to ask any person with probable cause if they entered into the United States from Mexico at an official port of entry where Texas holds, you know, a border. And the law that Representative Spiller crafted and that I testified against in a House hearing, is designed to impact the entire state. So this is the folks in the Panhandle who are living climate change right now with a horrific wildfire. This looks like Houston, an international global city, and it looks like uh, meatpacking towns and college towns and rural communities all across the state, the second largest in the country based on just geography. And the law is designed to affect anyone, regardless of class, status, education level, language. It's an attack on brown and black bodies, and it's designed to make us fearful. It's designed to make us quiet. It's designed to make us feel disenfranchised. And it's been blocked by the court now?
0: It won't go into effect next week?
6: It's not going to. God willing, it won't go into effect on the 5th. And we're joyful. We're incredibly thrilled that this judge has stood you know, in line with what we're we're fighting for, and so we know that this battle, you know, short was won. We're still in this longer longer war, but we're excited to continue the fight.
0: I wanted to ask you finally about what's happening up here in New York. Uh, New York City Mayor Eric Adams spoke out in favor of modifying New York sanctuary laws to facilitate the deportation of immigrants. The sanctuary laws date back to the '80s prohibiting state and local government agencies from collaborating with federal immigration authorities. Can you explain what—the significance of what he's proposing?
6: It's terrible in a word. Um, We have better solutions here at the southern border. We are partnering with USCIS, along with our counterparts in, in San Diego and Brownsville to make sure that people are able to apply for work authorizations while they're here at the southern border and leave with actually that application, if not the authorization, to then go to interior communities like New York City and can then begin legally working and adding to the local economy almost immediately. And that would reduce the burden on any kind of social safety net and actually help meet what people on the move actually want, which is dignified work and the ability to have some resources to protect their families and loved ones.
0: We want to thank you so much for being with us, Marissa Garza, Executive Director of Las Medicas, Immigrant Advocacy Center in El Paso, Texas. When we come back, we look at an intercept expose of a controversial New York Times article alleging Hamas weaponized sexual violence on October 7th. Stay with us.
1: And I walked a long way.
5: Not at all alone.
1: Whole city had gone astray. Every suitcase held a home.
3: Somebody call me refugee. Somebody call me refugee. Somebody call me refugee and I wear it proudly.
0: Refugee. <laughs> refugee by Kanon. This is Democracy Now, DemocracyNow.org: The and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The New York Times is reportedly conducting an internal investigation to identify the source behind leaked information about its coverage of Israel and Gaza. According to Vanity Fair, the internal investigation follows a report in The Intercept about the Times shelving an episode of its podcast, The Daily, over doubts regarding the accuracy of a highly controversial blockbuster New York Times article published at the end of December alleging Hamas members committed widespread sexual violence, weaponized it, on October 7th. Vanity Fair reports that in recent weeks, management of The New York Times have questioned at least two dozen staffers, including producers of The Daily, the podcast, in an attempt to understand how internal details about the podcast's editorial process got out. Democracy Now! asked The New York Times about the internal investigation. The paper's international editor, Phil Pan, said in a statement, quote, We aren't going to comment on internal matters. I can tell you the work of our newsroom requires trust and collaboration, and we expect all of our colleagues to adhere to these values, end quote. The New York Times article at the center of the controversy was published December 28th. It was headlined Screams Without Words, How Hamas Weaponized Sexual Violence on October 7th. In it, the Times reported they had found evidence of systematic sexual violence orchestrated by Hamas, and that their two-month investigation, quote, uncovered painful new details establishing that the attacks against women were not isolated events, but part of a broader pattern of gender-based violence, October 7th, unquote. However, not long after the highly publicized article was published, major discrepancies began to emerge, including public comments from the family of a major subject of the article, contradictory claims from a key witness, and criticisms over a lack of solid evidence in the overall investigation. Then news emerged last week that one of the three authors of the New York Times piece, named Anat Schwartz— had liked multiple posts on social media advocating for violence against Palestinians, including one that called for turning Gaza into a slaughterhouse. Anat Schwartz is an Israeli filmmaker who had no prior reporting experience before she was assigned by the Times to work on the major investigation, along with her relative, Adam Sella, and veteran Times reporter Jeffrey Gettleman. On Wednesday, The Intercept published another in-depth investigation that further questions The Times article and the reporting process behind it. It's headlined Between the Hammer and the Anvil, the story behind The New York Times' October 7th Exposé. And the two Intercept reporters who wrote it join us today. Jeremy Scahill is a senior reporter and correspondent at The Intercept. He's joining us from Germany. And Ryan Grimm is The Intercept's bureau chief in Washington, D.C., where he joins us from. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Jeremy, let's begin with you. Can you lay out first the significance of the New York Times article that's at the center of the controversy, and then talk about your latest piece that looks into how it all came about?
2: Well, Amy, in early December, uh, you had the death toll skyrocketing in Gaza. You had uh, a number of nations, including those that are allies with Israel, starting to speak out about uh, the death toll among uh, women, children, the elderly. Um, And part of a pattern of what we've seen uh, throughout the course of these five months of scorched earth attacks against Gaza is that whenever Israel perceives itself to be losing the narrative war or when it needs to uh, remind the public uh, of its perception that Israel is the only victim in this story, um, they unload a new round of, uh, of attacks against a, a variety of uh, of individuals uh, or organizations that um, are working in Gaza or living in Gaza, human beings. Um, we saw that with the uh, attacks against UNRWA, Uh, We saw that with the attacks against al-Shifa and other hospitals, and in early December, uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his government really began an intense propaganda campaign uh, to convince the world that Hamas um, had engaged in a systematic campaign of rape aimed at Jewish women uh, and girls. And then they launched this uh, this fake criticism of uh, feminist organizations, saying that they had all systematically failed to stand up and denounce this um, systematic rape regime that had been intentionally implemented by Hamas in the October 7th attacks, and on the day that Netanyahu made his most prominent. A statement about this. Uh, President Biden was at a fundraising event in Boston and he issued, he uh, made a statement uh, at his speech that echoed what Netanyahu said and said the world, you know, can't turn away and, and ignore this. Um, well, what was happening uh, at that very moment was that the New York Times, with one of its most prominent international correspondents, Jeffrey Gettleman, he had recently um, uh, hit the ground in Israel and um, he was working. Gettleman uh, enlisted the help of two individuals um, that were going to work with him there. And Gettleman had proposed three uh, lines of investigation. And one of them was uh, the issue of sexual violence. And the two individuals that Gettleman was uh, working with, um, one of them is uh, a very young person who's uh, only recently gotten into journalism, Adam Sella. And he had uh, mostly been like a food journalist and has a background in looking at agricultural issues, et cetera. He had started to uh, write some freelance pieces that were dipping into the waters of uh, of politics and the and the conflict, but uh, a, a quite inexperienced reporter. And then the other was someone with no reporting experience outside of making some uh, documentary films, and that is Anat Schwartz. Um, it's unclear uh, how Anat Schwartz, in particular. Um, Got involved with this project. And as you mentioned, she had early on in the uh, Israeli attacks against Gaza um, liked a a tweet that actually was cited by the International Court of Justice um, as a potentially, uh, a statement of potential genocidal um, incitement. She also liked a tweet from the Israeli government uh, promoting the. Uh, debunked uh, uh, allegation that 40 babies had been beheaded on October 7th, which uh, is entirely false, um, as well as another tweet that said we must uh, just refer to Hamas as uh, as ISIS. Um, and so they they start off on this investigation, and our understanding from sources is that the overwhelming majority of the interviews and reporting that was being done on the ground was being handled by um, Anat Schwartz and Adam Sella and we uh we discovered a, a podcast interview with Anat Schwartz in Hebrew uh that she gave where she it's a shocking um uh, podcast in how much detail she offers about the process that they used when they were reporting it um and just to to put it in a nutshell she describes how uh the first thing that she did was start to call around to uh, what she describes as all of the Israeli hospitals that have facilities that are called room four facilities. These would be the the intake places uh, where people uh, who have been victims of uh, sexual uh, crimes, including assault and rape, uh, etc., uh, where they would be examined or their cases would be referred. And she said that not a single one of them uh, reported that they had any reports of sexual uh, assault or rape on October 7th. Uh, she then um, started calling around to uh, rape crisis hotline and describes how uh, she had this, what she described as an intense conversation with the manager of the rape crisis hotline in that part of Israel, where she was dumbfounded when he was saying he didn't have any calls reporting sexual assault or rape. And uh, she's saying, how is this possible? And um, then she starts talking. She goes to a holistic a therapeutic center that was established um, at a a former high-end retreat center outside of Tel Aviv, um, where mostly people from the Nova rave, uh, where there were uh, attacks and where a couple of hundred people were, were killed. It was a place where people could do alternative medicine and yoga, relaxation therapy, I mean, people who were highly traumatized. And she goes there, and her characterization was that she sensed what she called a conspiracy of silence, among the therapists, because none of them were were telling her, "Yes, we're treating people who were raped or had um, uh, experienced sexual assault." And and so when she went through all the official channels, the places where you would reach out to see if you're if you're exploring if there's a pattern here, what what then happened is she starts to uh, look at who's been interviewed about alleged rapes during the October seventh attacks and ends up then going and re-interviewing a handful of people who already had made assertions that they witnessed uh, rapes. And some of these people uh, had told varying versions of their stories, which in and of itself is not necessarily mean that they didn't witness something. I mean, these are people that were in the midst of an incredibly violent episode. Um, But more central to that is that some of the people that the New York Times relied on to assert that there was a systematic, intentional campaign of rape weaponized by Hamas were people that have no forensic credentials, no crime scene credentials. Uh, These were people that um, are not legally uh, permitted in Israel to determine rape, um, that they relied on these individuals to make this claim uh, that that there was a systematic rape regime implemented. And some of those people, Amy, um, have well-documented track records of promoting very incendiary narratives about uh, atrocities that occurred on October 7th that were flagrantly false. Just two examples. One of the the most prominent or ubiquitous figures that has emerged in Israel's narrative that Hamas committed systematic rape is an architect from New Jersey named Sherry Mendez, who is living in Israel now and is a, a, a member of the Israeli Defense Forces Rabbinical Unit um, and she was deployed to uh, prepare women's bodies for burial uh, in, in in the bases where Hamas attacked military facilities. Um, and she's been quoted widely saying that they saw widespread evidence of of rapes, a uh, rape, and that she personally saw it. She described um, broken pelvises, um, not just among uh, you know soldiers, but among grandmothers and children. Um, but Sherry Mendez also uh, was quoted by the Daily Mail as saying that. A pregnant woman had a fetus cut out of her body, and that the fetus was beheaded, and then the mother was beheaded. Um, this is entirely false. Uh, we've gone through all of the official uh, records that Israel has put out on people who died that day. There was no pregnant woman um killed that day. That's been thoroughly debunked. Um, she also relied on Yossi Landau, a senior official at Zaka. Zaka has uh, Zaka has been it's an ultra-orthodox private rescue organization. It's been exposed by Haaretz, the newspaper in Israel, as one of the leading promoters of false information, um, and also uh, that they contaminated the crime scenes by moving um, evidence around that actual professionals could have done. They also have promoted the beheaded baby stories, etc. So the New York Times. They can't find anyone uh, who works in the rape crisis centers, at the hospitals, among therapists um, that are are coming forward and saying, yeah, we we saw this or we have documentation of this. So they go to people who already were known to have promoted false information, and then they start relying on their testimony to paint this tapestry, this notion that there was a systematic rape regime. And in the New York Times article, they do not ever disclose that their key witnesses— Um, have serious credibility problems. Um, So this is at a minimum, we are looking at a New York Times piece that uh, failed to inform its readers about severe credibility issues uh, uh, among some of its premier witnesses, quote unquote, that it put forward. I wanted to
0: go to a part of a podcast interview that Anat Schwartz did, on January 3rd, produced by Israel's Channel 12, it was conducted in Hebrew. Here are not talks about the difficulties and pressures in reporting the story.
6: Maybe
3: the standard that we have to meet may not be realistic. Maybe it won't be this complete big story that is told from beginning to end and is complex and has details and nuances and characters. And maybe we are aiming too high. Then there was the UN woman and the silence. And there was a lot of preoccupation with it. So I said, we're missing momentum. Maybe the UN isn't addressing sexual assault because no outlet will come out with a declaration about what happened there and that it will no longer be injured. Interesting. And at some point after one of the rewrites, we said, OK, that's it. And then I already informed all the people in the Israeli police who were waiting to see what was going on. What, was the New York Times not believing there were sexual assaults here? And I'm also in this place. I'm also an Israeli, but I also work for the New York Times. So all the time I'm like in this place between the hammer and the anvil.
0: That's Anat Schwartz speaking on a podcast on January 3rd. She said she felt between the hammer and the anvil, which, uh, Jeremy, you choose as the title of your piece. Talk about the significance of that. And again, the relationship between Anat Schwartz and the other reporter, the young reporter, um, Adam Sella.
2: Well, another part of this uh, this story is that the, one of the, the, the main um, uh, victims that was featured in this is referred to as uh, the woman in the black dress. Um, Gal Abdush uh, is is her name, and um, in fact, her family members um, are are the individuals in the feature photo on the piece. Um, and another uh, thing that we've we've learned from um, Israeli researchers who published this is that um, when Anat Schwartz and Adam Sella went to a woman that had taken photographs. Um, uh, of Gal ABDOSH that day, uh, they told this photographer um, that it was her duty under Israeli Hasbara to cooperate with the New York Times and let them have all of her photos. And Hasbara um, is the term for Public diplomacy, but what it really is is a is is the notion that Israel should engage in externally focused propaganda in order to win over international audiences, primarily you know, Western, the United States, and and powerful countries, to Israel's point of view. So she's using this term, going and trying to encourage someone to to cooperate with the New York Times, not because the New York Times is an, is is you know the most important news organization in the world, but because it's their duty under Israeli Hasbara. So when she talks about being you know caught between the The hammer and the anvil. Um, She, what she's saying is, she's caught between her duty to be honest and a journalist and her duty to serve the agenda of the um, of the Israeli state. Um, And her uh, partner in this, Adam Sella, is the nephew of Anat Schwartz's um uh, partner um and they're not married. In fact, Amy, the New York Times, uh they requested a correction from us because we had initially said that it was her nephew, um, which I think in the context of America and other countries, you would say if you're somebody's longtime life partner, you would say, oh, yeah, this is my nephew. OK, they're not blood relatives and they emphasize that she's not married. Fine. We corrected that. My question is, where are the corrections in the New York Times piece? The New York Times has grave, grave mischaracterizations, sins of omission, reliance on people who have no uh, forensic or criminology credentials to be asserting that there was a systematic rape campaign put in place here and to publish this article at a moment when Israel was intensifying after that brief pause where captives were exchanged, intensifying its genocidal attack uh, against the people of Gaza. this, This played a very, very significant role. And the more we learn about this, the more we discover that the reporting tactics that the New York Times used Um, are certainly not up to the standards that the newspaper claims to be promoting. They will not issue any corrections on what has already been documented to be very problematic sins of commission and omission in this piece.
0: We're going to break and then come back to this conversation. We're talking to Jeremy Scahill, senior reporter at The Intercept. Next up, he'll be joined by Ryan Grimm, who is the Washington bureau chief of The Intercept. And we want to talk to Ryan about what's happening in The New York Times now in response to this story um, and the leak investigation that's going on and why a podcast based on their story, their own podcast, The Daily, uh, didn't air. Stay with us.
3: I'm from here I'm
0: I'm from here by Mal Marcus. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We're speaking with Intercept reporters Jeremy Scahill and Ryan Grimm. About their expose uh, into the New York Times article that was published at the end of December. They published another one in January. We asked the New York Times for a response uh, to your article, and the international editor, Phil Penn, responded Ms. Schwartz was part of a rigorous reporting and editing process. She made valuable contributions, and we saw no evidence of bias in her work. We remain confident in the accuracy of our reporting and stand by the team's investigation. But as we've said, her likes of offensive and opinionated social media posts predating her work with us are unacceptable," end quote. Um, Ryan, if you can respond to this and talk about what's going on internally in the Times, and um, also talk about this leak investigation that's going on within the paper of record.
5: I By her own admission, in that podcast interview, she had uh, significant violence, because there are two ways to— Think about what happened on October seventh. The first way is that it was a day of extraordinary mayhem and violence. The Israeli defenses melted away. Not only did you have you know several thousand Hamas fighters stream across the fence, but you also had hundreds of civilians, some associated with gangs, come across. And in that context, the idea. That there would be no sexual assault is not taken seriously by pretty much anybody who understands kind of war and violence. That's one way to think about October seventh. The other way to think about it is that Hamas intentionally and systematically designed a a a, a kind of uh, strategy of weaponizing rape and sexual violence. That was what Anat Schwartz. And the New York Times kind of believed going into the investigation. And oftentimes, as journalists, we have something that we think we're going to be able to prove. We report it out and then we can't quite get it. Like it just it, we just don't land the story. But what the Times did is they wrote is they is they wrote the story anyway. But that gets you then to the Daily episode. So this article comes out at the very end of December, as the New York Times always does. It's, it's landmark pieces get turned into episodes of their flagship podcast, The Daily. But immediately after the story came out, it started coming under criticism because, as Jeremy pointed out, a lot of the named subjects of the story have enormous credibility problems. And so that's, this starts getting pointed out. Inside the Times, the producers of The Daily have their own kind of uh, fact-checking process where they go over the stories. And the original script that was, you know, produced for that first episode had to be discarded because the producers there couldn't stand behind it. So they redrafted a second script, which had a lot of caveats and was closer to the first version that I laid out uh, just now, which is in, which is in, an interesting podcast episode and is something worth exploring. But if they had aired that, it would have raised questions about why they were walking away from the certainty of the original piece. So we reported on uh, the kind of machinations inside uh, the New York Times about this, the controversy, uh, the disputes that were going on. And since then, uh, as Vanity Fair reported, uh, The New York Times has—rather than reviewing the kind of journalism that, that went into this, uh, they are kind of, they are launching, launching a leak investigation to try to figure out who's talking to us.
0: In February, one of the reporters behind The New York Times investigation, the Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter Jeffrey Gettleman, spoke at a conference on conflict-related sexual violence hosted by Columbia University. He talked about the piece.
4: I did some stories about hostages, and pretty soon—I mean, maybe, I don't know, within the first few days of of this attack, we were hearing reports of rape and mutilations of, of women. We heard it right away, and I don't. Maybe people in this room remember those videos of the female soldiers being taken away, and the body of that that one woman, Shawnee Locke, in the back of a pickup truck, half naked. Right away, it just, it just. There was obviously crimes against women uh, that happened. So, because, uh, sadly, I have some experience doing this, I began looking to see what we could find out. And I worked with two other colleagues and we interviewed almost 200 people over the course of two months. And what we found, I don't want to even use the word evidence because evidence is almost like a legal term that suggests you're trying to to prove an allegation or prove a case in court. That's that's not my role. Um, we all have our roles. And, and my role is to is to document.
0: So I wanted to get a response to um, what he is saying there. Um, uh He's talking, by the way, to Sheryl Sandberg, the former COO of Meta Facebook, Jeremy Scahill, if you can talk about what he sees his role as a reporter.
2: I mean, this is this is an astonishing comment from Jeffrey Gettleman. I mean, what is he talking about, that it's not the job of journalists to um, uncover evidence? If you're going to uh, have a headline um, that—by by the way, let me just say this, the screams without words uh, h- uh, headline— comes from a, a source named Roz Cohen, who was at the Nova Music Festival, and he claims to have witnessed um, a, a, a rape of a woman uh, that he said was—and he's a Special Forces, Israeli Special Forces veteran—and he has been very adamant that the people who he saw committing this crime were not Hamas, that they were um, uh, ordinary people. Um, and he has said that in numerous interviews. Um, but to have that—and and he's the one who said it was like screams without words um, they're using a headline from a person whose testimony undermines the thesis of their blockbuster story. So just, just to put that on the table, but for Gettleman to say that it's not the job of journalists to produce evidence, when you're going to say in the middle of a war where civilians are being starved and killed in an operation that is under review now by the International Court of Justice for genocide, if you're going to then make an allegation that Hamas implemented a systematic rape campaign, and you say it's not your job to produce evidence, then what is the job of a journalist in a situation like this? Because honestly, if you really read their piece carefully, much of it is innuendo. Um, Much of it is based on sources who have either credibility issues or lack professional credentials uh, to weigh in on these matters. This is a grave, grave situation. This is one of the most important pieces of journalism that has been produced during this war and one of the most consequential. And for the lead reporter, who himself has won the Pulitzer and is an experienced war correspondent, to say that it's not the job of the New York Times to present evidence in an article asserting that Hamas systematically raped women, um, I, it's astonishing. It's astonishing.
0: And also, the prestigious George Polk Award for Foreign Reporting this year was awarded to the staff of The New York Times. The citation reading, in part, quote, For unsurpassed coverage of the war between Israel and Hamas, Times reporters used firsthand accounts to demonstrate how brutal and well-planned the Hamas attack was, end quote. And this article in question that we're talking about, Screams Without Words, was apparently part of the package submitted by The New York Times that won the award. Ryan Grimm, if you can talk about that and the dissent within The Times itself. I, uh,
5: look, before I answer that, I did want to add one thing to what uh, Jeremy was saying. It, it is remarkable that Cheryl Sandberg was on that panel with Jeffrey Gettleman. Because on, on December 4th—and Jeremy talked about how this campaign was rolled out—on December 4th, Sheryl Sandberg and the Israeli ambassador to the United Nations hosted an event at the UN that, that launched the campaign against these feminist organiz- organizations for not standing up and, and condemning you know, Hamas's systematic use of rape. The next day, uh, it, was, it was Bibi Netanyahu and then, and then Biden who piled on that campaign— that same day on December 4th, Shell Sandberg uh, penned an op-ed in CNN. She also gave interviews or was quoted in the New York Times on that same day in an article uh, by Jeffrey Gettleman and not Schwartz and, and Adam Sella. So they were they were all working together on December 4th to launch this campaign. The December 4th article in The New York Times was head, had a much softer headline. It said, you know what do we know about the use of sexual violence or about sexual violence? Uh, on October 7th. and People can go back and read that story. They reported at the time that uh, Israel had enormous amounts of forensic evidence uh, that they were going through that would establish all of the claims that they were making. On uh, December 8th or 9th, they very quietly corrected that story to say, correction, uh, Israel does not have forensic evidence to back up these claims. It is relying on uh, eyewitness testimony. Uh, not Schwartz had previously reported in the Times that they had quote tens of thousands of eyewitnesses that they were going to bring forward to make these claims. So they 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 front loaded this campaign with these major claims that there was forensic evidence and and thousands of witnesses. Then then their final article comes out, you know, at at the end of the month, and to a casual reader, you would come away from reading it saying, well, they proved that they they made their case. Uh, these these you know. This barbaric terrorist organization did use rape systematically against Israeli women, and th- that was used you know, to justify the continuation of of the war on Gaza. But then, as you said, when, when The Daily tried to look closer at the article, they realized they couldn't actually stand up the claims that were ba- being made in it. And so inside the Times, you have this extremely in- intense debate going on And and I think leaders at The time have been surprised. They're used to external criticism, but the amount of internal criticism they're getting has them on the back foot.
0: And finally, Jeremy, we just have 30 seconds, but even the use of the term terrorist within The New York Times and the stepping back of uh, one of the leading, um, you know, editorial directors—
2: yeah i mean there's there's a lot of uh, um there there's a lot of concern right now um particularly among reporters um you know who do uh, work on an international level um that there has been a politicization of uh, of this war internally within the newsroom that is impacting the coverage and um i think I think it's pretty clear you can see that in some of the journalism and and now the new york Times um the New York Times has, uh, has ended up walking back the major claim that they made. And now they're saying hedge words that may have have occurred. That's one of the most significant things we uncovered here.
0: Jeremy Scahill and Ryan Grimm, they are the co-authors of the piece Between the Hammer and the Anvil.